One of my favorite conversations that I've ever read is a conversation that takes place between Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Comes in the second book, The Two Towers, when Sam and Frodo are traveling and they're traveling alone together, making their way into the dark land of Mordor. And they're hungry and exhausted and taking a brief moment to rest when Sam starts to talk about adventure stories and the great and heroic things that people do in adventure stories. And how when he was younger, how he thought that the people in those stories had forged their own adventures and that they'd been the ones responsible for for creating the stories they were a part of. But, he says, but that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered or the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have been just landed in them usually. Their paths were laid that way, as you put it. And after he talks about that for a little while, then he poses a question. I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. I love that question. I think it's a perfect illustration of something that, something we all do, even if we rarely realize we're doing it. You see, what Sam is doing in that dark and difficult moment, what he's doing is trying to make sense of this situation that he and Frodo are in. They've both left their homes. They've been traveling for months. Along the way, they've experienced more pain and more fear than they'd ever thought possible. And now they're getting ready to make their way into this country that's darker and more dangerous than anywhere they've ever been. And Sam's trying to make sense of it. And the way he does it is by recognizing that their lives are part of a story. Like all those adventure tales that he'd grown up hearing about. It's why he poses that question. It's why he says, I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. Now, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and presume that you've probably never asked that question yourself. You've probably never sat around and wondered what sort of a story you've fallen into. But that doesn't mean that you don't, you don't still use stories to make sense of your life. You do. We all do. That's just how we as human beings make sense of things. As the philosopher Alastair McIntyre once put it, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? In other words, we can't know what we should do unless we first know the basic storyline that we're involved in, where we've been, where we are, where we're headed. And in many ways, you could say that this is precisely what the Bible does for us. The Bible is not just a collection of facts that we need to believe, nor is it simply a list of laws or rules to obey. It could have been. God could have inspired a a Bible that just told us facts or gave us laws, but he didn't. Instead, he told us a story. Because that's what the Bible is, really. It's a, it's a story, a true story. And not just any story. It's the story of everything. It's the story that we ourselves are a part of. It is the story, as Sam put it, the story that we have fallen into. But why, you might ask, am I talking about that now? After all, this is not not a study of the whole Bible. It's not even a study of one of the narrative books of the Bible. It's a study of a letter 
written by the Apostle Peter. But if you pay attention, you'll notice that even here, even in this letter, that the way that Peter helps his readers make sense of their lives and gives them direction is by reminding them of the story that they're a part of and of where they are or when they are within that story. He reminds them of what's already happened, of where they are now, and of where they're headed. It's all right there in 1 Peter chapter 4. To show you what I mean, I'm going to break up this chapter into three sections following the the lead of a Canadian theologian named Douglas Herrick. I'm also going to borrow the subtitles that Herrick uses for each of these sections, what was, what is, and what is to come. We begin with the first section, what was. If you read the first six verses of chapter four, the first thing you'll probably notice are its strong moral overtones. The basic message Peter's trying to get across seems to be that you should avoid sin, especially the kind of debauchery that your pagan neighbors get up to, because after all, God is going to judge the living and the dead. At least that's one way of summarizing this part of the chapter, and there's some accuracy to that summary, at least to an extent. But if that's all you take away, then you're missing something important. Notice how Peter begins his instructions in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he says, arm yourselves. That sounds very militaristic, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. Because the story that we're a part of is a story of conflict, serious conflict, a conflict between good and evil, a conflict with powerful forces that want to dominate and destroy us. That's how the Bible tells the human story. You remember what God told Cain? Way back in Genesis 4, when Cain first first began to feel envy and anger toward his brother. Why are you angry, God said to Cain? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. In chapter 5 of his letter, Peter uses language that sounds remarkably similar when he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's easy to think of our moral lives as just some personal, individual struggle to, to, to be our best selves. As we go through our day, we're, we're tempted to want things we shouldn't and think things we shouldn't and say things we shouldn't. And sometimes, sometimes we give in to greed or, or envy or anger or pride or resentment or whatever. And then we feel bad, but we think, well, no sense beating ourselves up too much. We just need to try to be a little better next time. But that's not how Peter or how the Bible as a whole thinks about our moral lives. Because that's not how Peter understands the story of our lives. He doesn't think that the story of your life is just an individual tale of personal successes and failures and personal growth. Peter thinks that you and me and all of us are part of something much bigger, something that goes back all the way to Cain and Abel, a global struggle between life and death, a cosmic conflict between God and the devil. 
And we play a role in that struggle because we are those, as Peter said in chapter two, we are those who have been called out of darkness and into light. We are those who have been rescued from the clutches of death and have been born again, as he says in chapter one, born again to a living hope. And that is why Peter is so insistent that we should avoid sin. It's not because he's just moralistic or judgmental. It's because when we sin, we act as if we are back in the early chapters of our story, as if we're still in the kingdom of darkness. That is what was. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Don't participate in such things, Peter's saying. They are for the time that is past. That was an earlier chapter. You have moved on to a different part of the story, not to what was, but to what is. Peter reminds us where we currently are in this grand story by what he says in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Now, those words may remind you of the words of Jesus himself. After his baptism and his time in the wilderness, the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' message wasn't first and foremost a set of commands or moral instructions. It was an announcement, an announcement about something that was happening, an announcement that a new chapter in the story of the world was now beginning. Jesus described it as the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand, he said. God's reign, God's rule is now breaking into the world. Now, Peter is reminding us of the same thing, but he phrases it a little differently. He calls it the end of all things. Now, when he says the end, he doesn't mean the conclusion. He's not saying that the world is coming to an end. He's referring not, not to a conclusion, but to a goal. The goal toward which we've been aiming, you could say. That end, that goal is on its way. In fact, it's already begun to arrive. It's at hand. Frustratingly, Peter doesn't really clarify what this goal is. But that's because he doesn't have to. He's already mentioned it multiple times, beginning with what he said in chapter 1, verse 3, when he said we've been born again to a living hope. That is the goal. And then again in chapter 2 when he talked about us being God's chosen race and royal priesthood and holy nation. The end, the goal toward which our story has been aiming, is our own transformation into a living and free people who share in the light and love of God. That's the hope we've been given. That's what Peter wants us to remember. And that's why, that's why he says we need to be self-controlled as he puts it in verse 7. It's why we should love each other earnestly. It's why we should forgive each other and show hospitality, open our homes to one another, and share our gifts with each other and serve one another. Not just because those are good behaviors that God approves of, because that is who we've now become, and that is where we're headed. The end of all things, the goal of all things is at hand. God has already rescued us from darkness. He's already made us his people. He's already centered our lives on this hope of resurrection from the dead. We know where we've come from. 
and we know the future that we'll share together. Don't forget that, Peter is saying. Act like it. Love one another. Serve one another. In order that in everything, he says, that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And as you do that, as you, as you live into this new reality, this new part of the story that you have fallen into, don't forget where this story is heading. Don't forget what is to come. In the final section of this chapter, Peter turns his attention to the suffering that he knows his readers are experiencing or will experience. Remember, these early Christians to whom Peter was writing, they were living as strangers and exiles in their own homelands. They were living in ways that seemed strange to the people around them. And they often suffered consequences because of that. Some of those consequences might have been financial or professional. Their refusal, for instance, their refusal to participate in Roman public sacrifices or to acknowledge the emperor as a lord, those kind of refusals often resulted in Christians being excluded from a lot of the business that took place in the marketplace of their cities, all of which tended to revolve around sacrifices. There, there were financial costs then to being a Christian, but sometimes the consequences were more severe. Many early Christians were not only mocked or ridiculed for their faith, they were actively punished for it. Some were beaten, some were imprisoned, some were killed. Peter himself would experience such suffering, and he knew it was a possibility for the people reading his letter. So he told them, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Did you catch that? Peter tells them not to be surprised when they face persecution and to recognize that, that in so doing, they're sharing in the suffering of Christ. But more than that, he encourages them by reminding them of what is to come of where their story is heading. Rejoice when you suffer, that you may also rejoice, he says, and be glad when Christ's glory is revealed. In other words, don't forget what's coming. Don't forget what lies ahead. When Sam asked Frodo that question, I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into, he's not just making conversation. He's, he's trying to encourage Frodo because they are about to enter Mordor and it's going to be dark and it's going to be treacherous. And there will be times when they'll be tempted to give in to the darkness and to forget their mission or to lose hope. Sam knows that. And he wants to encourage Frodo not to give in, but he doesn't just tell Frodo what to do. He helps him by, by reminding him that they are a part of a story, a story of conflict between good and evil, light and darkness. And yet ultimately, as with those great adventure tales, Sam believes that theirs will be a story of victory. In the fourth chapter of his letter, Peter is doing something very similar. He's helping us make sense of our lives. He's telling us that we're a part of a story. He's reminding us where we've come from, 
where we are and where we're headed so that we won't give in to the darkness, so that we won't forget who God has made us, and so that we won't lose hope when things get hard. Remember what was, remember what is, and remember, Peter is saying, remember what is to come.